Well, good morning and welcome. I, for one, woke up a little chippier today. Alabama finally lost. That was good. Misery loves company. <clears throat> so, the title of today's sermon is How Evil Came into the World and Its Effects on Creation. I am always, and I pray I always will be, humbled to stand before you and to open the Word of God and to attempt by the power of His Holy Spirit to teach you what God's Holy Word says. And because of that, I ask you to join me just briefly as we ask God to meet us here through the power of His Word and His Spirit. Let's pray. Father, this is Your Word. There is no other book like it in this earth. We believe you gave us this word as an authority for our lives and as a way for us to know you. And so, Father, as we look at your word, we believe it to be written by men through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we, as believers and followers of you, wish to submit ourselves to it. Would you help us to understand it now? Would you help me to teach it in a way that brings clarity and hope and encouragement and conviction and direction? I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So here in the third chapter, we see that the nature of temptation is very subtle. The serpent, who we realize is being guided by Satan himself, comes to Eve in the garden. And there's something significant about why he came to Eve and not Adam. We talked a lot about that last week. We'll talk more later. But it is also interesting that the serpent does not show up and say to Eve, could you imagine if this were the case? Hello, Eve. I'm a God-hating monster who has come to bring pain and death to you. Both Eve and Adam, I think, if they would have heard it like that, would have said, you know, thanks, but we're good, you know. Nope, Satan, through the serpent, he doesn't show up with, as Hollywood might depict it, horns and a pitchfork and a red suit. He shows up, and he's subtle. He's really subtle. And he challenges God's Word, and that's really significant. Satan shows up and he subtly figures out a way to challenge the Word of God. Listen to what Jesus says about Satan himself. Because you see, Satan is as real 
as anything taught in God's holy word. Now, we've been conditioned, especially as Westerners, to kind of think about it like it's a silly fable or fairy tale. But if you want to know why there's so much brokenness, maybe even in your own family, I know in mine, it is this. It is him. And he seeks to devour you, and evil is real, and he is real. Now, he doesn't wear a pitchfork and wear a red suit. He comes subtly and deceptive. Jesus told the Pharisees in John 8, 44, he said, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar, and he is the father of lies. The temptation to sin for them and for us is ever, ever so subtle. It's almost as if Satan shows up to Eve and he says, kind of, I'm your friend. You know, we, we both believe in God don't we i'm not irreligious i'm religious eve maybe you though misunderstood the father when he was talking to you maybe god didn't surely say you will die but and here's the subtlety of it he twists one word you surely will not die because you see eve God, he doesn't want you to be a moralist or a legalist. He wants you to walk in grace and enjoy life and what he's put here for you. You see, subtly distorting the truth. God had clearly said, do not eat or you shall surely die. And so Adam and Eve fall into sin and they plunge all of creation into the curse of sin and death. One of the mentors of mine when I lived in uh, Birmingham right after I graduated from college was a man by the name of Reverend Frank Barker. He started a church uh, there in Birmingham. It was quite famous through the years. He says this about this account. He said that God placed Adam in the Garden of Eden as a probation period like this was going to be a test to see if man would obey had Adam withstood this test and passed God's test he would have achieved he would have achieved and see if you can follow me here sort of a, a higher life than even what they had if Adam could have passed the test, there was even a higher life than what they were experiencing. Now, you may be sitting there and you're going, no, I know this story, Clint, and they're already in paradise, and there's no sin, there's no fall. How could there be a higher life than what they already have? Think about it like this. 
they were able, in terms of Adam and Eve, they were able to not sin. But they also were able to sin. They were able to do either one. They were able not to sin, and they were able to sin. Now, think about us. After the fall, you and me, we are not able to not sin. Matter of fact, you probably don't realize this, but today, before you even got to church, you've probably sinned at least a dozen times in thought or deed. You may be thinking, no, not me, Clint. You don't know me. I'm really good. I do know you, and I know what the Bible says about you, and you're not that good. And so here's the thing. The higher state here is the state of not being able to sin any longer. You see, if Adam and Eve had passed the test, perhaps they would have not been able to sin any longer Adam and Eve did not pass the test and so they fall into sin and they take all of us with them the higher state is interesting because when Jesus comes and Romans says he is the second Adam Jesus is tested He's taken out in the wilderness after 40 days, and Satan says, look down there, I'll give you all of this. And he says, no, no, I will live only by the words of my Father. And Jesus passes the test. And because Jesus passed the test, when we trust him and we take him as our Lord and Savior, we ultimately get the higher life that Adam was intended to get. And what I mean is, right now, you can't help but sin. But as a follower of Christ, when you are glorified, when you are in heaven, you will not be able to sin. That is a whole other ballgame. And that, as the follower of Christ, is what you have in store for you. Do you ever think when things happen in this world, what a mess, how broken this whole thing is. One day, one day, it will not be so. There'll be no more cancer. There'll be no more death. There'll be no more broken, separated marriages and children from their parents. God is going to put it as it should be. This world is out of joint. It is broken. And so, look with me at Genesis 3, 8 through 13 again. If you have your Bibles, it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, and he said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman you have gave me with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, 
What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So, follow me here. <clears throat> They're in the garden, and they hear in the distance God walking in the garden. I don't know about you, but immediately a red flag goes off in my mind, and it says, I thought God was a spirit. How does God walk in the garden? You see? Does God have a physical body here? Is that what's going on? Does he have a physical body? Theologians use a term, and the term is anthropomorphism or anthropomorphic. And you can see it there. It's using human characteristics to explain God. Because you see, God is so other than us, he has to use terms that we can understand. Another explanation of this, and both are consistent with the wording in the Hebrew, is that this could be a theophany. And a theophany is a visible manifestation to man of who God is. Both of these could be correct. It could be anthropomorphic or it could be a theophany. Either one. Take your pick. The point and this is the key thing. The point is God has come down and is in the garden with his creatures, Adam and Eve, and he's doing it to demonstrate that they have broken his command. Now, how will they respond to his presence? And I would venture to say much like we respond. They hide in the midst of the trees. They experience fear for the very first time rather than fellowship, which is what they've only known with God to this point. Hiding reflects shame. It reflects guilt. We don't think about it much, but there is not a day, probably not a moment in your life or mine that we are not victims and experiencing guilt and shame. And so the humans are alienated both from God, their creator, for the first time, and even from each other, Adam from Eve. Let's read Genesis 3.9. It says, But the Lord God called to the man, and he said to him, Where are you? Now, last I checked, God was all-knowing. He was sovereign. And here he is asking this question, Hey, Adam, where are you? Like a, you know, a bumbling old guy. Where are you at, buddy? No. God knows, God knows exactly where Adam's at. There's a whole other point here. And it's important also to know that he confronts Adam first and not Eve you see God had told Adam first before Eve was created to not eat from the tree of good and evil Adam was responsible to communicate that to Eve as the head of their family we talked about headship last week and as I said last week Adam stood by the serpents there talking to Eve Adam stood by passively as men will tend to do even today and he allowed for this whole conversation to go on between this serpent and Eve 
Adam should have taken Eve and pulled her aside and said, Honey, before you were created out of my rib, God told me we're not supposed to eat of that tree. You see, we're not supposed to do this. We need to obey God here. I bet you a million bucks, knowing women, Eve would have went, Ah, thank you. You're right. We shouldn't have done that. But Adam didn't do that. The other thing he should have done, right after he, he talked to Eve, he should have came back to the serpent and he said, Get your tail out of here before I stomp you like LSU did Alabama. <laughs> he should have told the serpent to go. Adam did not act like a man and take responsibility. He did not protect his wife like a man should. Adam, therefore, is the first to be held accountable for their actions in the garden. The question of God is a rhetorical question. He knew where they were. So why did he bother asking the question at all? God is giving Adam an opportunity to own his failure. An opportunity to take responsibility for his actions, gird himself like a man, and be responsible. Genesis 3.10, he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Because I was naked, I hid myself. Adam's answer reveals his guilt and his shame. Adam had never felt shame or guilt before. And then in Genesis 3.11, he says, God says, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? We know what he says. He says over in 3.12, The woman whom you gave me, She's the, she's the reason, and you gave her to me, so you're the reason too. You know what that is, don't you? It's just blame shifting. Adam is not taking responsibility. You know what Adam should have said in that moment right then? He should have said, Yes, Lord, I ate from the tree. I have sinned. But you know what we do? Not just Adam. Adam has sinned, and God is showing him his need for forgiveness. But Adam, just like us, is quickly becoming an expert at justifying himself. It sounds really familiar to me, even my own experience. My default as a sinner is to justify myself at all costs. That's my default. We're born in the sin, and therefore, I believe, spring-loaded like a toy or a jack-in-the-box. When we're wound and somebody turns to the one, we pop and we justify ourselves in our sin. When what we need to do for our family's sake and, and man in marriages, if we would just do this, Yes, honey, I have sinned. Will you forgive me? But you know what we do? 
Well, you're always saying that. You always tell me this. And we go on and we win. We try to win the argument. And you know what we do? You can lose spiritually because it is way more important to be Christ-like than it is to win an argument. Even if I'm right, even if I'm right, I can be way wrong spiritually before a holy God because I'm making a defense for myself. So, there's a term in psychology, and I think I have a slide for it. It may help. The, the term is cognitive dissonance. It's a desire for there to be mental harmony. It's, it's, it's a mental discomfort experienced by a person who holds two or more contradictory beliefs or ideas. So, for example, if I'm, if I'm doing something that I know is not right, what I will ultimately do is I'll change my behavior to align with what I know is right, or, and this is probably what we do more than anything, I'll change what I believe so that I can keep doing what I want to do. And I think that's what happens in a million ways all the time with all of us. I'm just going to change. It's easier to change what I believe to be true because let me just say, <laughs> man, there's a lot of stuff in here that's true, that's hard. And so I would rather just say, well, I don't know if that really is true. That book was written a long time ago, and how do we know we can really trust it? And maybe you understand it that way, but everybody can understand it a different way. The fact of the matter is, that's not true. The original author wrote to the original audience, and he had an original meaning. And we can't just say, as my father would say to me, Clint, you can interpret that any way you want. I interpret it this way. You can interpret it that way. No, you can't do that. That's not the way it works. So sin has resulted in mankind's basic unwillingness to admit guilt, to accept responsibility for our actions. There's the old nursery rhyme. Have you ever thought about this? Why would you teach a kid this nursery rhyme? Here it is. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. What are we telling kids? You know, it's like you're going to fall and die and people aren't going to be able to help you. <laughs> well, man has had a great fall and no amount of men or animal sacrifices can put us back together again. But notice, and this is what's great. See, sweetheart. Notice the next part. Genesis 3.15, you may not know this text, but God in the midst of our fall is bringing something in that is amazing. And I'm going to read you first a curse. He says to the snake, The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, 
and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. So it's apparent at some point serpents must have looked really different and probably walked around and God is now going to make them humble and eat dirt the rest of their lives. But then this is where I want you to see verse 15. In the midst of Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall, nobody could put us back together again. We are in disrepair. The fall has brought death and suffering verse 15 comes into the picture why is verse 15 important look at this i will put enmity between you and the woman now that's like i'll make a war and what he's and what god's saying is between the between satan and the woman there will be this war this battle and he's saying in between your offspring and her offspring remember over in john 8 44 those that don't follow christ are children of satan those that are in the lineage of christ and follow christ are his children but what the text is saying even more specifically it says he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel another translation says he will crush your head and what that's saying is Right here in the midst of the fall, God is saying, for the very first time, some have called it, I can never pronounce it correctly, it's, I think it's a Latin term, proto-evangelium, see it up there? Which means the first gospel presentation in the Bible. It's the very first time. So right after this fall, God is saying, but wait, I'm going to save, and I'm going to use the seed of the woman to bring redemption to mankind. It's a messianic prophecy right here in the midst of the fall. And so, now, this gets a little more challenging. I have a fan back here. I put it on one. I probably should turn it up to three as I tell you the rest of this text right here because it's not easy, uh, and I, I want to do it right. God, would you help me now? in the power of your spirit to show women the kind of love and grace and still be true to this text. Amen. All right, it says in 3.16, to the woman he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. And then it says, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. That's Holy Scripture. What does it mean? It's consequences from the fall for the woman. Not a curse, but a consequence. There's going to be physical pain in childbirth, and there's going to be relational pain. And it is going to be in subjection in marriage. She had been created to be the helpmate. When it says helpmate, another word there is equal. She had been created to be his equal. But that was not going to happen. She would be dominated by her husband. And you see the wording in the text. Your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Has that not been the history of women? Biblical Christianity, not, not cultural Christianity, not just people that go to church all the time, but biblical Christianity, the real stuff, 
teaches that men should protect and serve and fight for women's rights. It is a ridiculous thought to me that women didn't get to vote to 1920. Where were the biblical men? Where were the godly men that would stand up for those women? I don't know. Has not that been true? Now, the text says, your desire shall be for your husband. What does that mean? The proper understanding, I believe, comes from comparing the verses in Genesis 4-7, which is only one chapter further, which uses both verbs to long and to rule. Same verbs used in Genesis 3.16. If you want to understand your desire shall be for your husband, you got to look at this text and look at them beside each other. In 4.7, God tells Cain, you remember the story, Cain and Abel. Cain kills his brother. God tells Cain, sin is crouching at your door. It longs to have you, but you must rule over it. It's the same words. It longs to have you. You must rule over it. The issue for Cain is what will dominate him and control him. What is it that's going to dominate him and control him? The same applies in 3.16. The woman will have an excessive desire and determination to dominate her husband. The man, however, it says, will dominate her. Thus, this verse describes the ongoing conflict in the marriage relationship that has existed since the fall. Some of us obviously have wonderful, incredible marriages, and I attribute that to the grace of God. But the man, it says in this text, will dominate her. I think history has proved it. Thus, this verse describes this ongoing condition of marriage relationships after the fall. Adam, for his part, let the woman lead when he was called and told to lead. And God now proclaims that the struggles and tensions will always appear in the marriage relationship. The fall caused broken relationships and a power struggle between men and women. Let me say this, though. That was not God's original design. That's a part of the fall. You might say, how could it not, how could, if God is sovereign, how does all that work, Clint? Well, God is sovereign. He's not surprised that we are where we are. But he has given men and women real choices that have real consequences. And that is how we get to where we are. So, I think an increasing problem in the church, and for myself, I did not grow up in the church. I grew up with a father that was a beer salesman, and we never went to church. But this time on a given Sunday, I was waiting at my house while everybody was at church for the Falcons to come on, and that was where I would worship. It was terrible worship. We always lost. But I did not grow up in the church, and what I believed was that only women were really spiritual. Because I never met a man in my childhood who was very spiritual. 
I had met several women. And I think that what we see in this text and the passivity of men is they're not stepping up in the church to lead. And so what do women do? They fill that void. It's interesting to me. Women will step in and lead. And, and I just have to say, they're really good leaders. The problem is, men aren't obeying God. They're being passive, and they're not leading as God has called them to lead. And I think one of the reasons God's calling men to lead is because he knows our sin tendency is to be passive. And so he's saying, I'm not going to let it happen. Even though the women can lead and they're good leaders, men, you rise up and you lead my church. But you don't dominate over women. You serve them. You fight for them. You love them like my son loves the church. That's a biblical picture of manhood and womanhood. Now, let me finally close with this. We're going to transition to what God says about Adam and his sin. He says to Adam in Genesis 3, 17 through 19, he says, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. Let me stop right there. Some of you are going to go, See, you're not supposed to listen to your wife. Bad application. I'll tell you right now, I don't give a sermon without asking my wife. I preach the whole thing to her every Saturday night, and I say, honey, fix me. She is the greatest helpmate to me on the planet. And men, if you're not listening to your wives, you're an idiot. They are some of the wisest people on the planet. So that is not what God is saying to Adam in this text. He is saying more specifically, in this situation, she told you something you should have said. That's not what the Bible says, honey. But you didn't, and you listened. And so he says, you shall, and going on into the text, you shall uh, not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. You see, in some sense you could say the fall has made work really challenging and it's not going to satisfy for men and then in another sense you could say the fall has made relationships really challenging for women and apart from the grace of God they're not going to satisfy now I think these overlap it's not like men's work women's relationships it's both it's both but I think there is something that's there that is kind of clear and more emphasized to men towards women. They do overlap, though. Also in this text is the principle of death. There had not been death. Now death has entered in. 
He says, out of the ground you came, and back to dust you will turn. But notice, even here, God gives a covering. It says that he gave them coats of skins to cover them. So they're, they're ashamed, they're naked, they're guilt-ridden, and God covers them. But he doesn't cover them until, if you look in your text, right after all this, and God tells them the consequences, it's interesting. Adam looks at Eve, and he says, Eve, your name will be Eve, which means mother of all living. Right in the midst of all these consequences, Adam, by faith, says, Eve, God's still going to bless us. And because of the faith of Adam, God clothes them with these coats of skin. Now, how do you get coats of skin? you got to kill an animal, don't you? Could it be that this is the beginning of God's institution of sacrificing animals because the text reads, and I think Michael has it up there, in Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Could this be that God, all the way back in Genesis 3, in seed form, is showing us that I'm going to kill these animals and it's going to foreshadow the Lamb of God who will shed his blood to take away and cover your sin? Where are you today? Are you like Adam and Eve? You're hiding from God because of sin, guilt, or shame. Satan, he's real. And he wants to take your soul. And he's denying the truth the biggest lie, I think, today from Satan is this right here. It's hogwash. Because if you can do away with this, I mean, think about it. If you're the enemy, if you can do away with this, you kill, you kill Christianity. And you kill souls of people. Because they say, well, you know, there's no standard to go by there's no way to know what's right and what's true so don't believe it don't believe it this is the word of God you're probably not going to live to be 95 you don't probably have forever to make a decision to be clothed in the righteousness of Christ you may walk out of here today and be hit by a car and it's over you urgently need to be covered in Christ. And not only for your eternal salvation, but the scriptures are clear. Honestly, for the most incredible experience, even in this life. Let's pray.